SBS, a world of difference. You're with NITV Radio, on mobile, online and on radio. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the land NITV broadcasts from, Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and their elders, past and present. We also acknowledge all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander tribes and clans we broadcast to, from the mountains to the plains, from the desert to the sea, from freshwater to saltwater. Yama, and welcome to Night TV Radio. Coming up in your program this Wednesday, the 15th of March, we have a conversation with uh, Mr. Charles Prowse, the newly appointed Board of Chair of Aurora Foundation. Chair of the Board of Aurora Foundation. As you'll hear, Mr. Prowse has ambitious plans for Aurora Foundation. He expects, amongst other things, to improve to more than double education outcomes for First Nations students within the Aurora Foundation setting. On NITV Radio today, we also bring you a selection of stories from NITV, including a story about the latest developments at the border between Queensland and the Northern Territory, areas devastated by major flooding. Also from NITV, a story on how to improve black housing in WA and also a story of a black leader whose pro-Indigenous voice to Parliament is at odds with his party's official stance. In the program, also on the eve of Close the Gap Day, March 16, we'll hear how little progress has been made as issues including inadequate housing and legal injustices continue to remain prevalent in many Indigenous communities. All these stories and more coming to you after the latest news on NITV Radio, broadcasting this Wednesday afternoon from Nam on the Kulin Nation. Bertrand Tungandami Ngaya, I am Bertrand Tungandami. Australia Day 1972 saw the first Aboriginal embassy directed outside Parliament. The native title legislation must be amended. And they've walked this land so many times before anybody came. I am sorry. In this bulletin, households across New South Wales, South Australia and South East Queensland could face power bill hikes as high as 23.7%. U.S. officials say they'll not be deterred after a U.S. drone crashed after an encounter with Russian military jets. And in sport, Manchester City triumphs 7-0 against RB Leipzig in the Champions League. Households across New South Wales, South Australia and South East Queensland will face increases in their power bills as high as 23.7% if the Australian Energy Regulator's draft determination is confirmed. These increases in the default market offer, or DMO, are set to come into effect at the beginning of July. The DMO functions as an electricity price safety net, marking the maximum increases for households and small business customers on standard retail plans in the three states. Residential customers on standard retail plans could face price increases of 19.5% to 23.7% depending on their region, 
the regulator says. After consultation period, the regulator will issue its final draft offer for the year. The United States claims one of its drones has crashed in the Black Sea south of Ukraine after a collision with a Russian fighter jet. The U.S. European Command said two Russian Su-27 jet fighters conducted what they called a non-safe and unprofessional intercept with an unmanned U.S. MQ-9 drone. It reportedly involved one jet fighter striking the propeller of the drone, which caused it to crash in international waters. The U.S. command claims that before flying into the drone, the jet fighter dumped fuel on it and flew directly in front of it. The U.S. government says it summoned the Russian ambassador over the matter, expressing fear such an incident could lead to escalation. U.S. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer says the incident will not stop the U.S. Air Force conducting reconnaissance in the region. It is another reckless act by President Putin and his military. And I want to tell Mr. Putin, stop this behavior before you are the cause of an unintended escalation. We have seen this behavior from the Russian military before, and it will not deter the United States from conducting operations over the Black Sea. The Albanese government says the disposal of toxic waste from Australia's new fleet of nuclear submarines is a very significant issue. Environmental groups have raised concerns on the impact of the program. Prime Minister Anthony Albanese announced the latest detail of uh, the AUKUS uh, submarine deal yesterday alongside the U.S. President Joe Biden and U.K. Prime Minister Rishi Sunak. The submarines powered by sealed nuclear reactors will need to have their reactors disposed of in secure facilities. Defence Minister Richard Miles has told Channel 7 the government is taking the issue very seriously. The first of the reactors that we will need to deal with uh, will come offline in about the mid-2050s. So that's when uh, we're talking okay. about, 30 uh. years from now. So, it, it, But I don't want to understate this. This will be a very significant thing that we will be doing. We will need to build a facility to, to do this. It's obviously going to have to be in a place which is remote from populations. We've made it clear this will happen on defence land, be it current or future. Mr. Miles says the government will announce a process on how that facility will be identified and constructed within the year. New data shows that thousands of people across Australia sought legal support regarding the mistreatment of people with disability ahead of, disability, of the Disability Royal Commission. Data from uh, your story disability legal support, a national legal service that has offered support for those taking part in the Royal Commission, shows demands surged in the months leading up to submissions closing on 31 December 2022. Your story has fielded over 10,000 inquiries since 2019 from people with disability or their supporters, with over 21% of these inquiries received during the second half of 2022. The Disability Royal Commission has reported that it has received 7,945 submissions. Director Susanna O'Neill says these numbers are a testament to the bravery of those coming forward. And I think what those numbers show is the extraordinary commitment of people with disability to creating a more inclusive society, um, not just for their own community, but for everybody. Um, it's not necessarily an easy thing to take part in the Disability Royal Commission or any Royal Commission. It's a very selfless um, thing to do and it often involves 
um, sharing quite difficult um, and sometimes traumatic experiences. Ms. O'Reilly said that uh, while submissions had closed for the Royal Commission, people with disability, families and carers across Australia could continue to access your story's free legal support. Five superannuation funds have been accused of greenwashing by not, go- by not doing enough to rein in major fossil, fossil fuel companies. The claim has been made in a report today by Market Forces, a lobbying group affiliated with the Friends of the Earth Environmental Coalition. The super funds, a mix of retail and industry providers, AMP, Australian Retirement Trust, Australian Super, Aware Super and Commonwealth Super Corp, Corp managed a total of $1 trillion of retirement savings. Market Forces says the funds have failed to effectively engage with companies they invest in from the fossil fuel sector, despite the funds being publicly aligned with the Paris Agreement on Climate Change and Zero Emissions Targets. A 69-year-old man has died after he was set on fire during an alleged assault in central Victoria, police say. Police say the altercation between the two men occurred at a property in Whitshift yesterday before the alleged confrontation resulted in the victim being set alight. The man was flown to the Alfred Hospital in Melbourne in a critical condition but died overnight. The alleged perpetrator has been charged this morning with attempted murder, with the charge expected to be upgraded. The accused will front Ballarat Magistrates Court later today. Four people charged with a combined 43 offences, including assaulting police, will face court today following an alleged police pursuit yesterday. Police say they pursued a speeding vehicle through New South Wales, in the Hunter Valley region after the car failed to pull over before road spikes finally brought the car to a stop. Following an extensive foot pursuit, the four were arrested and taken to Cessnock Police Station. The 37-year-old woman is charged with 23 offences, including multiple outstanding arrest warrants, driving while disqualified, using a weapon to avoid lawful detention, and two counts of assault on police. All four were refused bail, and they're due to appear at Cessnock local court today. Search teams in Gabon have recovered the bodies of an additional 15 passengers from a ferry that sank off the West African country's coast, bringing the death toll up to 21. The Esther Miracle Ferry was carrying 161 passengers when it sank last week. Head of Rescue Operation Bekale Mayong said on state television that 124 people had been rescued and 21 confirmed dead after 15 more bodies were fished from the shipwreck. Public prosecutor Andre Hoponat said the bodies were found within the sunken vessel. Fifteen bodies have been taken out of water and they were found within the sunken boat. And thanks to the intervention of divers, their bodies were able to be recovered. All of the victims were wearing life-saving vests, so they were stuck inside the ferry. Such operations are ongoing and the government has not yet commented on the causes of the incident. Nike will stop using kangaroo leather in its sporting shoes following increasing calls for a ban from animal welfare advocates. The U.S.-based company has confirmed its leading Tiempo soccer shoes will now be made with a synthetic material, which is a better performance solution than kangaroo leather.
The leather will also be phased out across all Nike products by the end of the year, the company confirmed. It comes after German brand Puma announced similar changes last week, noting the vegan synthetic material was better. Animal welfare advocates have welcomed the move away from kangaroo leather, describing the killing of kangaroos as inhumane slaughter. Australia's kangaroo population in 2022 was estimated to be more than 30 million. And in sport, Erling Haaland has scored a record equaling five goals in a Champions League match, leading Manchester City's 7-0 triumph over RB Leipzig. The Norwegian footballer made history with his five goals, including a first-half hat-trick, making him the fastest player to reach 30 goals in the competition. Haaland was eventually substituted after 63 minutes with City leading 6-0. It finished 7-0 and 8-1 on aggregate with captain Ilkay Gundogan and Kevin De Bruyne also netting with the last kick of the game. The win at Etihad at Etihad Stadium pushes Manchester through to the quarterfinals in an emphatic fashion. Now having a look at the weather around the country, Broome, a sunny day, 32 degrees, Perth, possible shower, 27, Adelaide, partly cloudy, 25, Melbourne, mostly sunny, 26, Hobart, a shower or two, windy, 21 degrees, Albury, Wodonga, sunny, 29, Canberra, sunny, 30, Wollongong, Clouds clearing, 33 degrees. Sydney, mostly sunny, 35. Newcastle, sunny, 36. Brisbane, sunny, 34. Townsville, mostly sunny, 32 degrees. Cairns, possible shower, 32. Alice Springs, sunny, 36. Darwin, partly cloudy, 32. And the Torres Strait Islands, a sunny day ahead and a top of 30 degrees. And that is NITV Radio News. TV Radio, Monday, Wednesday, Friday at 1pm or anytime online. I'm Patron Tungandami and you're listening to NITV Radio coming to you from Nam on the Kulin Nation this Wednesday afternoon. Now just a quick recap of uh, some of the stories we have in store for you this afternoon. Well, we have a conversation with uh, Charles Proust, the newly appointed Aurora Foundation Chair of uh, the Board. We also bring you a selection of uh, stories that aired on NITV, including the latest developments at the border between Queensland and the Northern Territory, an area that has been devastated by major flooding. Also from NITV, a story on how to improve black housing in WA. We also have a story about a national prominent leader whose pro-Indigenous voice through Parliament is at odds with his party's official stance. And on the eve of Close the Gap Day, which is tomorrow, March 16, we'll hear how little progress has been made because issues including inadequate housing and legal injustices continue to remain prevalent in many indigenous communities. Let's first talk education and closing the gap in education outcomes with the Aurora Foundation. NITV Radio, on radio, online and mobile. Charles Prowse has over 20 years' experience in Indigenous affairs and uh, leadership roles across Australia. And uh, he's now just been uh, appointed uh, 
Chair of the Board for Aurora Foundation. Welcome to Night TV Radio, Mr. Charles Browse. Thank you, Bertrand. Um, nice to be here. Just before we go into our conversation, it has to be pointed out that currently in Australia, there's less than 3% of board members who identify as Indigenous. And when you look at board chair roles, it's even less. So this is a really very significant step. Thank you. I'm, I'm very lucky to be appointed or elected by my fellow board members as their first Indigenous Chair, um, and I, like many Aboriginal Torres Strait Chairs, we take that very seriously. Um, I think to your point around not many Indigenous board members and certainly Indigenous Chair people, that's probably focused on the non-Indigenous community in terms of corporate Australia um, and the not-for-profit sector. But as Aboriginal people, Torres Strait Islander people, First Nations people of this land, there are a lot of us that do sit on boards and that are chair people, um, and that's mostly for our own organisations, our own community organisations. But it would be fair to say it, we could um, be much, do a lot more um, with other boards, non-Indigenous boards, or corporate Australia boards need diversity. So I'm a great advocate for that as well. But I would like to shout out, acknowledge all Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander board members and chair people wherever they are and whoever they're um, on the board for. And what will be your role uh, with the Aurora Foundation and uh, what are the plans going forward uh, starting from your tenure now as uh, chair of the board? I don't know if it's a line in the sand, um, but certainly, I mean, I'm certainly looking forward to this role and what it brings. We have a new strategic plan and there's a couple of things in that strategic plan I'm really keen to support. The first one, just off the top of my head, is we want to grow uh, the number of high school students that we speak with, engage or involved in our programs from, I think we're around about 300 mark at the moment. Yeah. And we want to actually grow that to 700 within five years. I'm pretty sure we can do that. I mean, I was the CEO of NASCA and the CEO of Supply and and you know as organizations that were small and are now big and um, working with our CEO Leela and the management team I have no doubt about our ability to scale um, we've got the building blocks uh, we've got um, the Paul Ramsey Foundation funding our five-year program rise to capture data and analyze how our programs are performing and what they need to do to improve and what the education might need to do so raising from 300 to 700, that's more than a double. It's a 100% growth. That's massive. Yes, when you say it like that, but I still think if we can do more, we want over 700. I think we've got the great building blocks to do that. Our systems are in place. Our staff are in place. You know, so there's a lot of hard work right at the front end, and there's still hard work to do. But I have no doubt about our ability to scale. Yeah. Um, but that's that's certainly what I'm, and that's part of the job, right? So that's what I'm part of what I signed up for, and so that's one of the things that, that I'd like to do in this this role. It's a huge undertaking, and this within five years. Wow. Aurora Foundation also, especially ever since they partnered, actually merged with uh, the Roberta Sykes. Uh, uh, scholarships program also 
works in uh, sending indigenous uh, students uh, to study overseas. Uh, will you be looking at uh, increasing the numbers as well? Uh, how are you looking at uh, actually yes. what's, uh, what are the pl- projected plans in the next uh, few years under your tenure? Well, apart from doing that, you know, for more than 700 high school students, yeah, we do want to support um, the postgrad students. I'm a postgrad. I, I'm, I was, as it's, you've said, a Roberta Sykes scholar. I was fortunate enough to go to Harvard for a year and do a master's in um, public administration. It's actually been five years almost since that because I'm getting invites to come to our five-year reunion, which is awesome. And it's to have that kind of experience for more First Nations people in Australia, whether it's Harvard, Oxford, Stan- um, Stanford, Cambridge, New York University, uh, UCLA. Um, we want more First Nations people to go to these universities by choice, by hard work, by merit. And we all have to get in by merit. But once we're in do the course, make great friends, make great networks, wonderful learnings and come back and live a good life of resilience and happiness but also to contribute to our community. And that's what we find with a lot of our alumni, particularly, well, all of them and those who have been overseas is, you know, a lot lot of them have come back and they're entrenched in community organisations or corporate or government um, positions where their role is to be part of leading change and embedding good indigenous change within systemic change within those organizations so we want to grow our scholars as just like we want to grow the number of high school students it's already sounding like a big job when i say it all like that but um to give them opportunities you know and help change the system for the betterment of all of us so alumni high school students and you know the other bits um there's still more work to do around corporate australia and business so um, but we certainly want to grow our alumni as well. It's a five-year tenure. Have you started or it's still uh, yeah, the beginning? Uh, well, it started uh, it, it started last in February. It's only recently that it started and I'm looking forward to it. We've got a board meeting in May. There's a few things to do before that. And we'll see how we go. Before the release of the Closing the Gap uh, statistics, and uh, yeah, you're doing a bit to actually contribute to Closing the Gap. Well, we are. I mean, May is National Reconciliation Week. NAIDOC's not far behind that. Um, I suppose one of the other things that we've got to learn is how to be an Indigenous advocacy group or organisation. You know, we've really worked hard on building the organisation, getting the systems, the process, the people, our policies, our programs in place, our data capture, our data analysis done by us, for us, with people that are qualified now from Cambridge and Oxford and many other places. So those scholars pay dividends to us as an organisation which pay dividends to the programs, which pay dividends to the community at large. That's what we hope to do. That's what we are doing, actually. I think my role in this organisation as chair is to look at taking that with our management and the board to the next level. How do we advocate to our people effectively with data, advocacy based on evidence? advocacy based on data 
from our students, from our programs, from our elders. I know we also like to you know, take a little bit of a belated shout out to our elders who support our program, support our young um, staff, and our older staff for that matter, in guiding us in a way that is both welcoming, embracing, and it really kind of challenges us in a nice way to think about, is this the best that we can do? Is this what is appropriate for our kids? Is this what is appropriate for our culture? And is this what is appropriate for our community? So in everything that we do, we want to be guiding and making sure it's the best possible outcome for our young people and for our community at large. And we couldn't do that without our elders. So I, I just want to acknowledge all of our elders on our programs. You know, without them, uh, their knowledge, their wisdom, we would be anywhere. We wouldn't be doing what we're all doing. So, yeah, all due respect to the yeah. elders. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I was, um, when I was in Harvard, you know, in Boston, and, you know, there was, for, I'll give you an example, there was of what it's like to be an alumni in these places. We had First Nation. there's a First Nations uh, course you can do at HUNAP, the Harvard University Native American program, and they talk about First Nations governance. And one of the ways that people describe in, in what's now called the United States of America um, around planning for the future and being responsible for those that come after you is to think about seven generations to come. And in their world, they think about these generations that are coming and they're coming and they're coming from the ground and they're coming like seeds from a you know a big oak tree they're 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 coming so for me what that has meant is we can't think about just the next generation my nieces and nephews my kids my grandkids my you know we have to think about their grandkids we have to think about long-term stuff we have to think about system change for the seven generations that are still to come and that really puts things in perspective around what the work is around how long things might take but also how forward thinking you are as a leader as an individual um, because one generation is only one-seventh of the seventh generations that yeah. the First Nations in um, the Americas say. So it really puts things into perspective and going to places like Harvard and um, having been now a part of the alumni just opens your world to those kind of viewpoints and, and really makes you challenges to what, what you can do, what you think you can do. Um, it's really exciting. So... I think about that when I think about this role around what do we need to do today to get us to where we need to be in seven generations that will come. Yeah, most definitely. Very, very big responsibilities on your shoulders, but uh, obviously you're very well equipped to handle whatever challenge comes your way. Now, Prowse... Well, uh, with, with the board, yes. <laughs> no, you've got uh, the, the education background, the experience in these uh, organizations and all that. So, of course, other, as a team with uh, the rest of the board and also with uh, the leadership of um, Leila Smith, who is there while doing a great job, you are all going to do a fantastic job, I'm pretty sure. Well, thank you. I hope so. 
Yeah. Um, we'll see, you know. Maybe we should check in in a year. <laughs> you no, know, we'll check in with uh, after your meeting and all that. We'll be checking in. And please stay in touch so that we can uh, stay informed and also inform our audiences about uh, the wonderful things that uh, Aurora Foundation uh, is doing, and uh, especially under your leadership. Charles Prowse, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us uh, today on NITV Radio. Thank you very much. Um, Have a good day. Join the conversation on radio, online and mobile. You're with NITV Radio. Welcome back. And uh, just a quick recap of uh, what's uh, coming up next. Uh, We'll have a selection of stories that aired on NITV, including the latest developments at the Queensland New Queensland Northern Territory border, an area that has been devastated by uh, flooding. Also from NITV, a story about how to improve black housing in WA. And also a story about an indigenous leader whose stance on indigenous voice to parliament is uh, diametrically opposed to his political party's uh, line. Join the conversation on radio, online and mobile. You're with NITV Radio. The first Aboriginal man to sit as Indigenous Australians Minister has rebuked his former colleagues for urging the government to define Aboriginality in regard to the voice to Parliament. It comes as the government prepares to finalise the question Australians will be asked to vote on in the referendum. Cameron Gooley reports. Once the nation's most powerful Aboriginal politician, now an advocate for the upcoming voice referendum. Look, what I hope my coalition colleagues do is take a conscience vote. The former minister weighing in on the debate after Liberal leader Peter Dutton called on the government to clarify how it would define Aboriginality for those wanting to sit on the voice. The government needs to be specific about what they're going to use in this body because this is a question that Australians are asking. In fact, it's a question that's been raised with us by Aboriginal people as well. The conversation drawing a rebuke from the first Indigenous person to sit in Federal Cabinet. Why do we as the only cultural group have to justify that in a multicultural nation like ours? I just find it offensive. The government will introduce its Constitution Amendment Bill to Parliament at the end of the month, outlining the question Australians will be asked to vote on. Independent Victorian Senator Lydia Thorpe says she may withhold her final position on the referendum until she sees further action on the recommendations of the landmark Bringing Them Home report and the Royal Commission into Aboriginal deaths in custody. They're tinkering around the edges to try and stop gap all the time. Just implement the recommendations. Uh, Until I see that happen, um, I can't say that I can support anything. Support the government would be eager to secure. Cameron Gooley, NITV News. The flood... The flood emergency in the country's north continues with authorities shifting their focus to the Queensland Northern Territory's border region. Emma Callaway reports. It's one of the most remote towns in Queensland, now isolated completely, as record floodwaters cut off roads and inundate homes. Around 100 residents have been evacuated by helicopter, very, very stressful um, and obviously a little bit scary. It wasn't until you sort of get up in the air and you see the devastation that was actually surrounding the community 
um, and knowing that there was they were predicting more water to come, it was sort of all, where, where's it all going to go? Around 70 people remain, boats replace cars as streets become waterways. They're now relying on food drops and bottled water as power restrictions continue. Power is limited at the moment. Uh, we're currently on water restrictions um, and some of the sewer treatment plants have been compromised at the moment as well. Stranded too, the local livestock, left to battle croc-infested waters in search of safety. While flood levels begin to recede, the damage is yet to be assessed. The main thing for us is just, yeah, we all need to come together and work together, you know, to help rebuild and repair. Meanwhile, fresh food has returned to shelves in the Western Australian town of Kununurra. Supply routes cut by flooding in the Northern Territory have reopened and emergency shipment of food in the Kimberley have been cancelled. But the clean-up and recovery operation in evacuated communities continues as the impacts of an unprecedented wet season continue. Emma Kellaway, NITV News. Leading Aboriginal housing organisations in WA have joined forces with the private sector to tackle the state's growing housing crisis. Almost half of all homeless people in WA are Aboriginal and greater private investment is one way to get them off the street. Karen Cox has the details. Aboriginal community housing organisations and the private sector came together recently in Perth to launch a partnership project. A lack of affordable housing, higher interest rates and a skyrocketing rental market has forced almost 20,000 people on the public housing waiting list. Within our houses we've got overcrowding all, you know, we could have a three bedroom house with Nana with 20 people in them because family looks after family. But that is exacerbated as you go north because there's no rental options at all. So if there's no housing, that overcrowding and homelessness becomes an issue. The WA government says 41% of people sleeping rough are Aboriginal and is committing billions to fix the housing crisis. We are investing $2.4 billion in social housing and homelessness programs over four years. Uh, and there are real opportunities into the future. We've already released $150 million to community housing organisations. But more investment is needed, and events like this are one way of attracting greater private investment. It's amazing. We have received some philanthropic funding. Through that, we uh, purchased two houses, and we have housed uh, a couple of families. But, you know, it's not enough. You know, we need uh, state and federal government to invest in our housing. You know, like, how many times we have to advocate and lobby? The four Aboriginal housing organisations run more than 330 homes keeping more than 1,600 Aboriginal people off the street. And they say new private partnerships are helping. We just uh, put in um, air conditioners in our over 55s complex, um, which is something that um, locally, you know, government don't do. Uh, We've done, we have a tenancy support program where it's funded by the sisters, where we um, assist our tenants... Um, in sustaining their tenancies. A growing crisis needing a long-term plan. Karen Cox, NITV News. Visit 
sbs.com.au slash NITV radio. National Closing the Gap Day is uh, the 16th of March and this day is being held to raise community awareness awareness about health inequalities facing Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people. Since the campaign began, experts say little has been accomplished as issues including inadequate housing and legal injustices continue to remain prevalent in many Indigenous communities. Ayman Baghdadi reports. While the campaign has grown over the last few years, there has also been controversy and debate. Carl Briscoe is the CEO of the National Association of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health workers and practitioners. We've really seen you know, very little progress in terms of those particular targets. The targets, you know, really they're monitoring mechanisms. Um, they do, you know, monitor how we are progressing. However, um, we believe the Close Gap campaign, the priority reform areas are the, the biggest areas that will get the better gains that are required to close the gap. Mr Briscoe says First Nations people must have access to appropriate housing. Look at RHD, rheumatic heart disease. You know, that's a very, one of the easy... Not easy, but one of the one of the fixes that can be done straight away is adequate housing. We know that overcrowding is actually a huge component of um, rheumatic heart disease being prevalent within our Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander community, and it's really quite solvable by having adequate housing. Dr Thalia Anthony is a professor of law from the University of Technology, Sydney. I would say that it hasn't adequately addressed those issues because the targets that are relatively new for closing the gap are really focused on incarceration and a very narrow, narrow approach is adopted. And so when we look at the underlying problems and what is needed for um, transforming the system, whether that's policing or more bail, better bail provisions, better bail accommodation, um, many of those systemic issues as well as the inherent racism in the system tend to be um, sidelined in the reporting. Mr Briscoe says issues like inadequate education and employment must be repaired. The social determinants, you know, housing, education, employment, you know, generally if those three are addressed, your health is um, <clears throat> more likely to be okay. They can't be divorced from from each other. They need to be inter they're interconnected, intertwined, and they both uh, sorry, all of them look at um, complementing each other in terms of um, the ultimate aim of having better health. Dr Thalia Anthony says reform is urgently needed to adequately address legal injustices faced by First Nations communities. 100%. I think there are very adverse issues for addressing this um, target and I think they're getting worse. When we look at what is currently playing out in Queensland and the response to 
panic about youth crime, when we see what is happening in our springs and the increased police presence there, these are all factors that push up First Nations incarceration rates. And yet the federal government is offering no leadership to stem the tide on policing and penal measures. In fact, you look at our springs and you say they are contributing to that tide. And so I think the, the federal government needs to step up and provide more leadership. And that report by Eamon uh, Baghdadi for SBS News. And that's all for this Wednesday afternoon. I'm Bertrand Tungandame, thanking you for your company. Till next time, bye for now. Yalu.